All right, this is the first week of our new series, uh, Live Well. And we're talking about how to live well, especially in challenging times like the times that we live in. The past few years have probably challenged our health and well-being more than any time in our lives, collectively at least. Of course, we've all have, we have our own unique stories and things that have happened to us, but as a people, the past few years have probably been more difficult than any time in our lives. We have ex- uh, heightened anxiety because of COVID and, and strained relationships over politics and that the added stress of the COVID lockdown and loneliness for some of us and anxiety for others. Maybe you have, you know, a, you're immunocompromised or you have a family member that you're worried about and we've been tempted, to, if you're like me, and if you want to be honest, you've been tempted to overeat, to eat more, and exercise less, or overdrink. And on top of that, some of us during this time have been thrown into a new spiritual journey. Perhaps you were part of a church and some things became clearer to you over the past few years. Does anybody want to say amen to that? And you decided, oh, I can't ignore questions anymore that I have, or I just can't. What I see happening in this group of people, I just can't be a part of that anymore. So you've been thrown into this new spiritual journey in your life, and that is anxiety-producing, isn't it? What do I really believe? What does it mean to be a Christian in the 21st century United States? Where do I really fit in? Is, it, is there a church community that I can really be a part of? And, and so there's so many things weighing us down And so that's what we're exploring in this series, Live Well. How can we live well emotionally, physically, uh, relationally, and spiritually in such a challenging time? And today we're starting with what does, or what do we do, how do we respond when life doesn't go well in the kind of time we're living in now? Last fall, seems like 20 years ago again, but last fall... I gave a series called Distressed, Living in an Age of American Anxiety, when we were online only during the shutdown. And at that time, the CDC reported that the percentage of Americans reporting symptoms of anxiety and depression had doubled in the previous six months. Now, that probably is not a surprise that anxiety and depression levels had gone up during that year. And you probably won't be surprised to learn that what do you think happened after last fall? Do you think Americans' anxiety and depression levels went up or down? Way up. They went all the way to 41.5% of Americans. Now, listen to what this study found. 41.5% of Americans reported symptoms that could be diagnosed by a psychiatrist as anxiety order or depression. Anxiety disorder or depression. 41% of Americans. In 2014, that was 18%. Now, do you, on, the, on the flip side, do you kind of start to feel a little bit normal after hearing something like that? If you feel like your anxiety and you're just shr- struggling with sadness at times, or maybe, as one study found, so many Americans are struggling with anhedonia, it's called, which is the lack of pleasure, just kind of feeling the blahs. Just, eh. Have you felt that over the past couple of years? Where there are times you're just like, eh. It's just like the highs and lows are taken away. And just, we, we're, we're living in this prolonged sense of anxiety and sadness. How about you? And if the, if the you from five years ago were to meet the you now, Would the you five years ago say to you, 
how in the world are you making it? How are you making it through? There are times I feel like we've been lulled into this heightened fight or flight response that some of us just kind of feel all the time, this low-level anxiety, this low-level fear about the future of our country and what's going on now and just all of the, the, the strained relationships and the weirdness we see around us. If sometimes we don't realize how stressed we really are. If the you five years ago were to meet the you now, what would you five years ago think? Wow, how are you making it through such a difficult, stressful time? Well, whether we are aware of it or not, when life doesn't go the way we want, we have both an intellectual response and an emotional response automatically. If you're a note taker, you, wanna, you, you like the structure of a sermon outline, there's the first point. Whether we're aware of it or not, automatically we have both an intellectual and an emotional response when life doesn't go the way we want. Intellectually, we start asking questions about what we're going through and why we're going through it. Human beings are meaning makers. We look for meaning in our experience. Is there any meaning to this? What does this mean for my life? And emotionally, we feel powerful emotions connected to an experience, whether or not we're aware of them. Next week, we're gonna talk about awareness and getting, in, you know, getting your head and your heart connected and are you aware of your emotions, how you feel and why? But whether we realize it or not, those emotions are there, and so we just want to dive in, first of all, to the intellectual questions, when life doesn't go the way that we want. Perhaps the first challenge for us, intellectually, is to discard bad theology. Theology is any thoughts that you have about God. Theos is God, ology, the study of something. So anytime you have a thought about God or faith or the Bible or religion or anything, you're doing theology. And so we want to discard bad theology. And one of the things we say around here, why, is because bad theology hurts people. When we have beliefs about God or about the Bible or about religion or about life that, that are unhealthy, that don't help us live well, those beliefs hurt people, including us. So just a couple of those. One of those examples of bad theology is that when life doesn't go the way we want, well, God must be causing this suffering in order to teach me a lesson. Anybody heard that? Has anybody ever had somebody say something like that to you? And you're like, thanks so much for your help when somebody said that to you. This is just bad theology. However, when we read the scripture, you do see some of that theology in the scripture. One of the things that's difficult for some of us, especially those raised like me, if you were, you were raised in a, in a church tradition that taught you that, that God basically just like dropped the Bible from heaven and its final product with a bow around it, there's my book. There's my book I wrote for you. It's inerrant. Everything it says, just do it, and it's easy, and that'll be great. And, and, and you realize, wait a second, I can read some parts of the Bible where God does appear to be the cause of things, and other parts of the Bible where God doesn't appear to be the cause of things. Which one is right? And of course, you, you mature in your faith and you, you don't give up when you ask these questions and you realize, well, actually, there's a progression even within the Bible about beliefs about God and what God causes. And there are people who read some parts where it looks like maybe God is the cause and they'll say things like, everything happens for a reason, thinking that they're helping. And now, if they mean by that, well, well hey, whatever happens to you, you can, you can just take the ball and run with it and you don't let it defeat you. Well, great. That's, that's a good meaning. But if by everything happens for a reason, well, God is causing it, 
Well, then perhaps that's a different story. So yesterday, my youngest son had a soccer game, and, uh, and so uh, the parking lot's completely full. You know how this works. The people are parked along the curb. They're parked in the grass, and there's nowhere to park. And so I dropped my family off at the curb so they can go in, and then I parked like 200 yards away and then pulled in the rest of the equipment. That's just part of the dad responsibility. And then after the game, uh, we did the same thing. They went, they went to the gate, and then I went farther and got the car, and then I pulled up the car along the curb to where they were, and I saw a little girl standing on the curb with her mom. And the little girl, who's probably five, same age as my little guy, she looked through the windshield, and she said, There's Daddy! And I'm like, No, I'm not Daddy. I'm not. I'm not. You got the wrong, you got the wrong guy. And then she, she looked through the windshield a little bit more, and then her, her cute little face scrunched up, and just like as angry as it could be. And she's like, and I could hear her say to her mom, that's not my daddy, like that. And I thought, you know, I don't have anything to do with this. I am not the cause of your confusion. I, if you're angry at me, I, it's not me. And I didn't, why are you angry at me? And, and so sometimes we ascribe to God Things that perhaps God has nothing to do with in our search for meaning making. And so as followers of Jesus, what did Jesus have to say about this? Does God cause the things that cause us pain? In Luke chapter 13, some people asked Jesus this question. Local governor Pontius Pilate, who appears later in the gospel stories, had ordered his soldiers to kill a group of people while they were worshiping. They were in a worship service, and he ordered the Roman centurions to go murder them. And in uh, verse 1 of chapter 13, it says, Now there was some present at the time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices while they were worshiping. Jesus answered, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? I tell you, no. Or those 18, and then Jesus elaborates. They didn't ask him about this, but he goes on to give another example. Or those 18 people who died when the Tower of Siloam fell on them. There was a a tower near Jerusalem that collapsed, and some people were standing under it, and it fell on them and killed them. It was a horrible tragedy. Jesus says, do you think that they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. So they they asked Jesus, why would... Why would God allow this to happen? Or did God cause this to happen? That's the essence of their question. And and Jesus says, well, well, no, they weren't worse sinners than everybody else. That's not why Pilate killed them. We're left to just surmise Pilate killed them because Pilate was evil. That was his own moral choice. But then he elaborates. And he says, the tower that fell. Do you think that those people standing underneath the tower and suffered were any worse than anybody else? He says, no. But he doesn't give a reason why. We're left to just think, well, it's faulty design, faulty materials. In other words, God is not the cause of everything that happens. And when, when we suffer and we see other people suffer, it doesn't mean that God has caused that in order to teach somebody a lesson. Bad theology hurts people. They're already hurting, and then we give them some belief that even makes it worse. So that's, that's one piece of bad theology. The second is, is on the other extreme. Since God did, not cause, God did not stop the suffering, either God does not exist, 
Or if I believe God exists, God has forsaken me. So either God's causing this to teach me a lesson, or on the other hand, well, since I'm going through pain in my life, God, there is no God. Or if there is a God, God doesn't care about me. And in philosophy, this is called the problem of evil. And it is a problem. It's a bigger problem than a lot of Christian thinkers realize. And it goes like this. If God is all-powerful and God is good, wouldn't an all-powerful good being want to stop suffering? But obviously, suffering is not stopped. And so perhaps there's no God. And that's been an argument against God's existence for centuries. And it is a problem. There are pastors who think they can easily pass that off. And it's not quite that easy. So if you remember, uh, last year we had a guest named Thomas J. Ord, who was the author of uh, a book called God Can't. Think about that. That's a provocative title, isn't it? God Can't. And he's a Christian thinker, a theologian, who tries to deal with this and, and say essentially God's love limits God's power, that God does not control the world. God has decided that because out of love for human beings, I, I don't control their lives. And so there are terrible things that happen because I, I, I refuse to control. God's love limits God's power. So maybe you find something like that compelling. Maybe you don't. But if you'd like to read more about that, Thomas J. Ord is the author. The book's called God Can't. But regardless of how you feel about the, the philosophical attempts at answering that question, the problem of evil, I find it interesting doesn't really match with the God that we see in the New Testament anyway. Because think about it. How, how did the lives of people in the New Testament go who believed God was good and that God was power, immensely powerful, if not all-powerful? Well, let's start with Jesus. Did Jesus retire at 65 and, and drive a golf cart around Sun Lakes and die in his sleep at 98? Is that what happened to Jesus? You know, Jesus was was tortured to death and executed as a young man. What about Paul? It's said that Paul was executed under the authority of the Roman Emperor Nero. Same thing with Peter. All of Jesus' disciples were either martyred or exiled because of their faith. And then how about John the Baptist? Do you know John the Baptist's story? Who was beheaded by a corrupt king for a completely decadent, absurd reason. And so the, the philosophical question is an important one. Why would a good God and an all-powerful God allow evil? But at the same time, when we read the New Testament, that's not really the God we see. That's, we, we can't read the New Testament and assume, as hard as this is, that I can go through life and, and not experience pain. And God is just going to make me healthy and wealthy and hashtag blessed. And everything's going to go, go well for me all the time. That's just not the God that we see. And those are at least a couple of intellectual questions, but that brings us to the emotional response we have when we face pain. That's there whether we realize it or not. We mentioned John the Baptist, and we could learn a great deal by looking at the way Jesus responded to the death of John the Baptist. John was, was a famous and respected preacher and cultural leader in the time of Jesus. John was a bigger deal than what you get when you read the New Testament. And we're given clues, actually, because John baptized Jesus. Think about that for a second. Jesus went to John to be baptized by John. And so John was essentially this monk who lived out in the desert, close to the Jordan River. You have the Sea of Galilee in the north of Israel, and then the Jordan River flows down to the Dead Sea. 
And John lived in a commune out close to the Dead Sea along the Jordan River. And John baptized people there. And, and crowds of people traveled from Jerusalem down the side of a, of a mountain, a treacherous road, to go out into the desert to have John dunk them in a dirty little creek because of the meaning that he was giving to them about life and about following God, about what that means in their lives and what it means to live well. John would say things like, here's how society needs to work. Because they've been, they've been overtaken by the Roman Empire and they were living in a time of intense division and hatred and, and people murdering each other because of their political differences, political violence. Does this ring true at all in 2021 America? And John drew people out to the desert and dunked them in the Jordan River and he said things like, if you have two coats, Share with the person who doesn't have one. And show kindness and show mercy to the people around you. And people's hearts were stirred that, yeah, John has something here. We need this. Jesus was even baptized by John. And, and Herod, who was the king, the puppet king, he was, the, he was the, the so-called king of the Jews who was controlled by Caesar, who occupied the land. He had John in prison. And then let's read in Matthew chapter 14 what happens to John. On Herod's birthday, the daughter of Herodias danced for the guests and pleased Herod so much. This is his daughter-in-law. She danced for the guests. There's, there's, there's a lot of biblical euphemism there about what's actually happening in this party that Herod has with his friends, with his family member dancing for them. That he promised with an oath to give her whatever she asked. Prompted by her mother, she said, give me here on a platter the head of John the Baptist. The king was distressed, but because of his oaths and his dinner guests, he ordered that her request be granted and had John beheaded in prison. His head was brought in on a platter and given to the girl who carried it to her mother. John's disciples came and took his body and buried it. Then they went and told Jesus. And here's verse 13. When Jesus heard what had happened, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. So this corrupt king, this, this joke clown of a political leader has this good, respected cultural leader executed. And John meant a lot to Jesus. Jesus called John at one point the greatest person who had ever been born of a woman. He's the greatest person who ever lived, essentially. And how, and how does Jesus respond when life doesn't go well? He withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. What does that sound like to you? He went to be alone and he grieved. Jesus grieved. It reminds me, what's the shortest verse in the Bible? John chapter 11. Do you know it? Jesus wept. If you had to be like in a Bible verse contest when you were a kid, you picked that verse. Jesus, Jesus wept. That was at the death of Lazarus. So here we see when Jesus hears what happened to John. He's teaching near the Sea of Galilee, where he spent most of his life. It's a, it's a huge inland freshwater lake. He got into a boat, and he went to some other side of the lake to try to be alone. Jesus grieved. And so when life doesn't go well for us, and we want to follow the example of Jesus, we grieve the losses that you have experienced. 
When we think of a loss in terms of, of death, now of course, we've had over 700,000 Americans die from COVID and then life has not stopped. Normal life has not stopped during that time. There are people here who have lost loved ones. And we think of grief only in terms of death, but every disappointment, every traumatic event you experience, every uh, stress-inducing circumstance is a loss of some kind in life. Something is lost. Somebody said something to you that hurt you deeply. There's a loss there. There's a loss of trust. There could be a loss of friendship there. You're applying to jobs. You don't get the call back. You, you expect to get it. Nothing happens. That disappointment comes in. There's a loss there. A loss of what could be. You've got a family member who over the past few years has started to post things on social media that you find to be wacky at best or horribly offensive. And there's a loss there. You've lost something in that relationship. And like I say all the time, a professor of mine in seminary said, every loss must be grieved. Every loss must be grieved. And so whatever it is that's causing your life to not go so well, that's the loss. And the only emotional response that we can give that helps us at all to get to a place where we can live well is to grieve that loss. Now, we're not very good at grief as Americans. There are other cultures that have a set time of mourning when someone dies, for example. And we don't do that. We, just, we think we're just going to move on. Americans are future-oriented. We want, we want pleasure and not pain, and we just want to move on so often. And we think of, of grieving as something that's just a bummer. Like, like, that's just a downer. I can't go there, so I'll just avoid it. And, of course, that doesn't work out. The long, grief comes back in all kinds of other ways. We think of grieving as a, as a bummer that we want to avoid, but it doesn't have to be that way. Back when I was in seminary, I had a, a counseling internship at a church where I, I led several sessions of a, a video class called Grief Share. And it was maybe 10 or 12 weeks long, and, and people who had had losses in life came to this class, and we watched this video segment for maybe 15 minutes. Zig Ziglar was in the segment because he had lost his wife. If you remember Zig Ziglar, he's a motivational speaker, and, and there were some other leaders, and they talked about their own experience of grief on the video for a few minutes. And then we had this small group of people, maybe 10 of us, sitting around a circle, and we talked about our grief. Now, of course, tears were shed every week. And difficult things were said. But at the end of the meeting, we did not leave like the meeting had been a downer. We didn't leave with our heads down and just bummed out and, and, and depressed. We left feeling better than we did when we showed up. Because that's what happens when you process grief, when you talk about it, when you talk about the loss, when you talk about the disappointment of this family member who's just gone off the rails, when you talk about the loss of a loved one, when you talk about your frustration with your finances or job situation or your health, when you talk about it and you share and you process it with other people, of course tears are shed. Of course it feels difficult in that time, but then after you do it, you feel better. And so every week at the end of this grief share class, we left feeling better than we felt when we showed up. There was even laughter at times after horribly heart-wrenching things had been shared because it had provided catharsis. It got it off our chests. 
and been able to share with another human being how we're doing. And there were times that we left kind of joking a little bit because that's what grieving can do. You feel better after you do it. And every loss must be grieved. That's the gift of having people in your life that you can talk to and you can walk through life with and you can process with and share with. Even when you think you should be over it and you should have moved on because you're a good American. That's what good Americans do. But they're still there to listen a year later, two years later, when you need to talk. That's what a church should be, by the way. That's what a community like this should be. And for those of you who have had the loss of losing a spiritual community, where you used to be a part of a church and you just realized, man, I can't do this thing. I can't be a part of this group anymore because of what they stand for. You need a community. And that's what a church should be. And the church is not a building. The church is people. It's us. We are the church. It's a good thing the church isn't a building when you meet in a multi-purpose room in an elementary school. There's the faint smell of, of uh, grilled cheese sandwiches. And when you walk in, it's a good thing the church is not a building. The church is people. It's us. We've been talking about this membership class coming up becoming a member of the well. And pe some people come from a tradition where you have a membership class and some people don't. But a member in the Bible is a body part. That's what a member is. It's, it's to be a, a body part uh, of something, a member. Right. And in Scripture, in 1 Corinthians 12, Paul describes the church, us, as the body of Christ. Jesus is the head of the body. He's the brains of the operation. It's what I call my wife in our marriage, the brains of the operation. Jesus is the head. It was an attempt at a joke. I thought it would be funnier than what it actually was. That's fine. I'll move on because I'm a good American. Jesus is the head of the body. We're the body of Christ. And each one of us is a body part, a member of his body. And this is what Paul writes. It's not going to be on the screen. This is what Paul writes about us as the body of Christ. But God has put the body together, giving greater honor to the parts that lacked it, so that there should be no division in the body, that sounds good, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. And listen to this, if one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. So if, if I'm an ear and something really cool happens to an eye, we, I can rejoice with the eye because we're all part of the same body. We cry together. We laugh together. If something awesome happens to you, then we can all celebrate that awesome thing that happened to you because we're all members of one body. If something difficult happens to you, then we all suffer together. That's empathy, by the way. We suffer together. We show empathy together. Why? Because yeah, there are many parts, many members, but we're one Body. That's what it means to be the church, to be the body of Christ. That's the kind of thing we talk about in this membership class is coming up. You can RSVP if you go to wellchurch.org. But what the church is supposed to be is not an institution, not a facade, not a building, certainly not this political action committee that's become in the United States. The church is supposed to be a group of people who realize we're all part of one body. Jesus is the head and we're all members of that body. And we can laugh together and cry together and go through life together. That's what it means to be the member of a body. And, and John the Baptist lived for a purpose. The ancient historian Josephus wrote that the reason Herod had John killed was because he hated John. And he was afraid that John could essentially lead a riot 
and overthrow the king if he wanted to because of the influence that he had over the people and he wanted to get rid of John. John lived for a purpose, you know, for God's calling on his life. And while Jesus was grieving, not after, while Jesus was grieving, something else happened. If we continue in, in Matthew chapter 14, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. Hearing of this, the crowds followed him on foot from the towns. When Jesus landed, he saw a large crowd. He had compassion on them and healed their sick. And then right after this, you have one of the most amazing miracles presented in the Gospels, the feeding of the 5,000. And so lots of moms can, can uh, identify with this, first of all. You think you're going to go be alone for a while, and here come the kids. So Jesus gets into the boat, and he sails away, grieving. His heart's broken. His, his friend, somebody he thinks very highly of, has been murdered by this clown of a king. And Jesus gets into a boat and goes to grieve. And while he's on his way to a solitary place to grieve, he's still grieving. A crowd has heard he's on his way there, and they meet him there on the shore. And what does he do? Leave me alone. While he's grieving, while he's grieving, he didn't let Herod win. He didn't let some joke of a politician take away his calling in life, his mission, his purpose, what, what made him want to get up in the morning. He didn't let Herod take that away from him. He didn't let Herod win. And he lived out his life purpose. He, Jesus kept doing what God had called him to do while he was grieving. While he was grieving. He lived out God's purpose for his life. When life doesn't go well, we grieve. We, get, we discard bad theology, first of all. Get that out of our heads. And, and emotionally, we grieve. And then if you really want to overcome, what you do is you decide, I'm not going to waste my pain. You don't waste your pain. What that means is, it's been said that our greatest passion in life often comes from our greatest pain. And you, you can see how this works. You have somebody in life who grows up in poverty and they grow up to take on poverty because they have a passion for helping other people to do well and, and not have to experience the same pain they had out of empathy. They want to help other people not experience the thing that they experienced that caused them pain. Or they want to give people you know, the good things they didn't have. They want to do good things in people's lives. That's their calling. Our, our calling, our passion often comes from our greatest pain. And in scripture, with the problem of evil, like we talked about earlier with the intellectual questions, we're not given a why. We're not giving a, given a really good answer that's intellectually satisfying about why something would happen. But we are given a now what. You're not given a why, but we are given a now what. I don't know why this terrible thing happened, but I am given a now what. That now that I've experienced this pain, it hasn't been going well, and I'm grieving. But I can live out God's purpose for my life. I can choose that my passion is going to come from my pain, and I can turn my misery into a ministry. I can, I can, even while I'm hurting, and even part of my healing will be to help other people 
in the same way that I'm hurting often. If you're grieving the loss of something, it may be that while you're grieving, you throw your arm around somebody else who is grieving in the same way. In the online connect group, I know that happened in the last series, that more Christ-like way series where people were encouraging each other, going through similar things. Don't waste your pain. God didn't cause it to teach you a lesson, but it happened. And so now what? As I grieve, as I get rid of bad theology, as I grieve, I don't want to waste my pain. And I want to allow God to turn my misery into a ministry. And I can give of my life in whatever way I can, whatever way I'm gifted at. And it may be that that thing that's causing me pain is the exact thing I do to help other people who are facing the same kind of pain. I want to close with a blog post from a doctor in Chicago named Hashem A. Hasabala. He writes from his experience as a doctor and as a Muslim. And he wrote this blog post on June 7th, 2020, at the height of the COVID pandemic during the shutdown, when he was telling family members that their loved one wouldn't make it. They were ventilated and in the hospital room alone, and he would have an iPad out like this, and their family would be watching on the iPad. Of course, what do you say? You're a doctor. In their darkest hour, what do you say to these families? Is there anything? you can do to help them. This is the blog post he wrote on June 7th, 2020. I'll just read some excerpts from it. His blog post was entitled, 11 years ago today, my daughter died. And he writes, everything that could go wrong that week did. It was the last course of chemotherapy, supposedly the easiest. And we were looking forward to a summer without hospitals, without chemotherapy. And without any further complications, I have a picture of him and his daughter here. She was battered, no doubt, but she seemed to have survived the worst of the cancer treatments. It was not to be. He goes on to write that within a little over 24 hours, her condition had deteriorated and she died of septic shock at 12 years old. And then he writes, that was 11 years ago. There is not a day that goes by that my heart doesn't ache for her loss. There is not a day that goes by that I don't miss her terribly. There is not a day that goes by that I am never truly whole, having lost a piece of me on that warm, sunny, yet very dark day. And he describes more of his grief journey in the blog, and, and then he moves to how losing his daughter has helped to form him as a doctor and how he cares for his patients. And he writes, and so when it becomes clear that my patient, despite all that I've done, will not survive their critical illness, I share my experience with my patients' families. I tell them I've lost a daughter to cancer. I really do know what you're going through. Almost without fail, I'm able to connect with them on a deeper level. He said, this has been particularly helpful and poignant during the COVID-19 pandemic, where many patients have died and their families have had to suffer this terrible fate. Sharing my daughter's story has gone a long way to help relieve the suffering of my patients who will never come off a machine. And all that we're doing is prolonging the dying process. And then he writes this, it's hard to see how something good can come out of the loss of a child. 
The loss and grief is suffocating. Yet there has been a silver lining to my daughter's death. Through sharing my experience as a doctor living with grief, the Lord has helped dozens of families cope and deal with their own personal losses. And while I would not wish the loss of a child on anyone, I am nevertheless grateful to the Lord that I've been able to help others by sharing my pain. That's how you respond when life doesn't go well. God did not cause her death and certainly did not cause her death so that he could help people. That's, we discard bad theology. But it happened. We're not given a why, but we are given a now what. And so this Muslim doctor, following his faith, has said that I'm going to choose to bring something good. And that my daughter's name will live on. And in her memory, I'm going to share my grief as I grieve with other people. And as a doctor, I'm going to be able to help people in their darkest hour. Because I have walked through that valley of the shadow of death. Just like they are now. How many of you would like to have that doctor in your time of need? That's turning misery into a ministry and deciding, even as I grieve, I'm not going to waste my pain. So as we begin this series, living in a very difficult time and trying to to practice well-being and patience and presence and awareness and and healthy choices in our lives, our well-being is under attack. That's the time we're, we're living in now. And we can take this opportunity, if we want to look at it that way, to discard bad theology and and intellectually deal with the questions we have. And then emotionally, when life doesn't go well, we can follow the example of Jesus and we grieve. And how do we grieve? We get together with a community of people, the body of Christ, people who will listen to us, real friends, real friends, 4 a.m. friends, that you can call at 4 a.m. and they will actually pick up the phone. And you process with them and you share with them and you grieve and you're a good American so you think you move past it, but it's, it's, nope, that grief's there. And so you talk about it again and they'll listen to you and you grieve and while you grieve, you decide, you know what, I'm not going to waste my pain. This pain's not going to have the last word in my life. It's not going to derail me. It's not going to throw me off track in my calling in life. But my greatest passion could come from my greatest pain. God's going to turn my misery into a ministry and I can help other people even in the very same thing that I am going through. So as we begin this series, let's begin with the choice. Don't waste your pain. I invite you to pray with me. Oh God, in the time that we live in, there are lots of parallels that we can draw between 2021 America and the time that Jesus lived in. A lot of the same divisions, a lot of the same heartache, a lot of the same grief disease, fear of disease. That's why in this Matthew scripture, Jesus is healing people. There was no medical science to speak of in that day, the way that we have now. And we're so thankful for medical professionals like uh, Dr. Hasabala here who give of themselves. But there are so many parallels to our time in, in his. And we thank you, God, that in in the life of Jesus and in the kind of time that he lived in, we can see how he dealt 
with the most difficult challenges in life. First of all, we discard bad theology. We're not going to make it worse by believing bogus things, fatalistic things that just cause more suffering. Jesus says, no, God doesn't cause everything that happens. Some things, they just happen. It's not, it's not some things. Most things, all things, they just happen. God is not the cause of it, but God is immensely powerful. And we can partner with God to not try to figure out a why, but we do have a now what. And even as we grieve, which we have to do, we have no choice when we go through difficult times, even as we grieve, we can decide we're not going to let it win. And like Jesus, we can continue to partner with you to, to live out our calling, the gifts and skills you've given us, the experiences that we've had. You can take those things and turn them into something that makes other people's lives better. You can turn our misery into a ministry. And we don't have to waste our pain. That something good will come out of our pain. God, as we begin this series, we open our hearts to you. Some of us, they're broken hearts. And it, it took tremendous courage to even walk through the door today or to, or to turn on Facebook or YouTube and watch this. But we open our hearts to you. And God, help us to be able to sing gradually, step by step, a little bit more. It is well with me. We thank you for the healing that you're going to do in our lives and the wisdom we'll gain in this series. In Jesus' name, and everybody said it.